0: The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Community Church in Oldham County, Kentucky. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to anyone who happens to listen. For more information, please visit our website at ashlandcc.net. Thanks for listening. Open up your Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3. I see the kids moving. I think today is uh, family worship, so, kids, you're going to stay put today. This morning, uh, we're going to look at a series of passages in the book of Hebrews, beginning with Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. That's the one I'm going to read publicly, but um, the the goal this morning is for us to, we're wrapping up our series. So this is the last of of the series of four sermons to start our year in the Awake series. And then next week, we will begin uh, concluding Acts, uh, as we never got to finish that but before Christmas. So uh, this morning we're going to look at how uh, it requires all of us to stay awake, how we are awake together in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. And I invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of God's perfect and holy word. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would remind us this morning of the gospel, and I pray that you would remind us this morning of all that the gospel has done for us. Lord, help us to rejoice in Christ and help us to rejoice in this communion that that we have in him with one another. Lord, show us the importance of one another in our lives, in Jesus, and we pray this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, my wife, Nikki, takes her job as passenger in any car that I'm driving very seriously. Uh, My favorite is when I'm turning left in front of oncoming traffic. Uh, Just for the record, I've never gotten us hit that way, uh, but that doesn't stop her from this kind of uncomfortable shifting and usually some kind of nervous uh, noise uh, that's coming out because she always thinks that I'm not going to make it, but I always do so far. Now, my all-time favorite quote from her is, I just don't understand you. (laughs) Now, that quote is applied to the routes I choose to take us down, as in, I just don't understand you. Why in the world did you go this way? Uh, That quote can be applied. It's very diverse. Uh, It can be applied as well to uh, where I chose to park the car. I just don't understand why you would park here. Um, And just this last week, uh, probably my favorite of all time, uh, that quote was applied to the way I chose to back out of our driveway. (laughs) I just don't understand you. There's like two ways to do this, you know. (laughs) It's slightly annoying. I mean, just to be honest with you. But I have to admit, my wonderful wife Nikki has also saved us multiple times. In fact, more times than I could count. Has she seen me hit the blinker and not aware that there's someone in the blind spot, right? And she says, hey, there's a car back there. That's happened multiple times. She's often, when we're in a hurry, looking up routes on, on her app so that, to make sure we don't get stuck in traffic. And she's, we've avoided that many times late at night, especially when the kids were younger, uh, when we used to try to drive late to keep them asleep uh, so that we could all have peace uh, in the car. Uh, I would get tired, and she would, she would make sure I was alert. She would talk to me and constantly... Uh, Make sure I was, I was awake and I wasn't falling asleep. And so, to be honest with you, even though her, her snide remarks are sometimes unnecessary, I would rather have her as a passenger than not, right? Just in terms of driving. I'm not talking about my wife. Of course I want to have her. But just in terms of the driving experience, what she brings far outweighs the little annoyances. And that's an important thing, and I I, I, I tell you that story because there's a sense in which that little micro example is true of all of our relationships that we've ever had. Every relationship that you've ever been in has negative components and positive components. And you have to kind of weigh that sometimes, right? Right? I mean, and to be honest with you, it's, it's possible. It, and I've heard, and I've, I've heard people, I've been in counseling situations where people have said, I've had to come to the conclusion that I can't be in that relationship anymore because the negative is so far outweighing the positive that it is affecting me, that it is unhealthy for me. Relationships are hard. That's just the reality. We've all been hurt by people. We've all been annoyed and frustrated by people. And the thing about relationships are, you can't choose just the positives and leave the negatives. It's all or nothing. It's a package deal. And there's a temptation, especially if you've ever been hurt in a relationship or if you've ever been hurt multiple times, there's a temptation to give up on them altogether. I can't tell you how many Christians I've counseled over the years who have told me, you know, I love Jesus. I just, I just can't be in the church anymore because I've been hurt so much. It's just not worth the risk. And that's a tragic place to be. So this morning is kind of, if you're there, this morning is sort of going to be my argument against that. My, my trying to talk you out of that. From the Word of God, I want to reason with you and I want to explain to you this morning from God's Word how necessary relationships are, particularly relationships in the church, relationships with one another. You know, C.S. Lewis gives us one warning, one type of warning about this mentality. In his book called The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis writes, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything And your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, your heart that is, you must give it to no one. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable impenetrable irredeemable to love is to be vulnerable that's a good warning it's a really good warning when we cast off relationships when we seek to preserve and protect ourselves that has an impact on ourselves vulnerability is required in relationships and that is the very reason why so many of us are uncomfortable with them but in the new testament relationships are not something that christians in christ can give or take they are necessary god says we need them and god says that those people out there need us Not only do we need people, but those people need us. And that's very important because the call in the Christian life is a call of giving yourself to others. It is a call to follow Jesus in sacrificing ourselves for the good of others. It is a call to love. And here's the reality, church. You cannot love without risk. Every time you love a person you are risking being hurt by that person. C.S. Lewis was right. We have been studying the theme of wakefulness or watchfulness. We have been talking about how necessary it is if we are going to thrive as Christians in this world, how necessary it is for us to stay awake to the realities of the gospel, to keep our eyes open to the reality of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And so far, we have been describing this as if it's something that we do And we haven't referenced the church very much, but this morning, I want to make the argument that you, just like everything else in the Christian life, you can't do it alone. Christ calls us to watchfulness or wakefulness together, and that's what I want us to see here in chapter 3, verses 12 through 14 of Hebrews, communal watchfulness communal watchfulness. Now, A little bit about Hebrews, because we're just kind of jumping into the middle. Uh, I believe that Hebrews is a sermon. It reads like a sermon. It's an exhortation. The writer of Hebrews is trying to help this community persevere in their faith in light of suffering. And he's reminding them of how great Jesus is. The whole first part of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than the priests. Jesus is better than the sacrificial system. Jesus is everything that everything God has ever revealed is pointing to. And he's got these exhortations. And we're we're jumping into one of those exhortations here as we look at verses 12 through 14. Now, right before verse 12, he quotes a psalm, a, a portion of a psalm, Psalm 95, 7-11, and I'm going to read that for us. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And and so he, he, he describes Israel, particularly he describes their rebellion after God had redeemed them from Egypt. They go out into the wilderness and they are idolatrous, they are disobedient And because of that, God says, this generation will die and will not be allowed to enter the promised land, will not be allowed to enter my rest. And he wants us, the church, to look at their example and see it as a warning for us. Look at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. In other words, don't be like them. That's the warning. Now, that naturally raises a theological question for us, doesn't it? Every time I ever talked about this in a sermon, someone inevitably will come up to me after the sermon and say, Hey, do you think someone can lose their salvation? And so here's the thing I'm gonna just, I'm gonna deal with it right now. The answer to that question is definitively no. A genuine believer in Jesus. So if you're asking me, can a genuine, born again, regenerated Christian fall away? My answer to that is no. And I will point to so many places in Scripture that back that up. The Bible tells us that he who began a good work will complete it. Jesus tells us that no one can snatch his sheep from his hand. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that all the ones that God foreknew, he predestined. And all the ones he predestined, he called. And all the ones that he called, he justified. And all the ones that he justified, he will glorify. That keeps going and going and going. So that's a really important question. But now if you ask me a different question, if you ask me, "Can a visible Christian fall away?" Well, the answer to that question is yes. And unfortunately, I've seen it many times. You see, Church, what we have to reckon with is that nobody in this room can see the regenerated heart. All we see are the evidence is the fruits of it. We can see that someone's made a profession. We can witness someone baptized. We can line up beside them every Sunday at the Lord's table. We, we can be in their BFG. We, we can think we're seeing good things happening in their lives. But at the end of the day, look at the end of this section and how it concludes. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If if someone does not hold their original confidence firm to the end, then the conclusion is that they've never come to share in Christ. These warnings in Scripture, like this one we're looking at today, this is how God helps us persevere. He is warning us, keep believing. This is a means of grace for us. God is warning us through His Word so that we will not be one of the ones who falls away. So that we will persevere. All who genuinely have put their faith in Jesus will persevere. What's vital for every one of us is that we take this warning seriously. Every one of us needs to take Care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an, un, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That is a warning for you. It is a warning for me. We must take care. We must keep believing. In fact, this is one of the reasons why I despise the articulation of perseverance in the language that says, once saved, always saved. And the reason I don't like that language is because I grew up in the Bible belt. I grew up, listen to me, and you may have grown up in a similar context, but I grew up in a context where every 9, 10, 11-year-old prayed the sinner's prayer when they were at VBS in the summer. And then from that moment on, even though they're out at the field party getting wasted every Friday night, they're walking around with eternal security. Why? Because once saved, always saved. But here's the reality, church. Once saved, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and leads you into a lifestyle of repentance and faith in Christ. There is transformation after regeneration. There is fruit that comes from the gospel that the Holy Spirit produces in our lives. We keep believing, we keep persevering, we do it with assurance. But we have to keep believing. Now here, here's the thing that this passage is really vital for. And I'm going to read verses 13 and 14 again. And I'm going to read it this time the way it's written. In fact, I'm going I'm to back up and read the whole passage again. And I'm going to read it differently than the way it's printed in your English Bibles. All right, you ready? I'm going to read it southern style. Here we go. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of y'all an Evil, unbelieving heart, leading y'all to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of y'all may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Do you see how that changes the way you interpret this passage? Because we read it the first time, and what do we do? We say, well, I need to apply this to my life. I need to be careful that I don't fall away. I need to be careful that I keep believing the promises of the gospel. I need to focus on persevering. But when we read it the way it is written, when we read it as a y'all instead of a you, it becomes broader and this passage, listen to me, church, this passage is a call, not just for you to make sure you don't fall away. This is a call for all of us to make sure none of us falls away. You see the difference? This is to us. You are responsible for one another, the writer to the Hebrew says, which I think's Paul. We can debate that later. But he says, keep on making sure. He says, the way you do this, verse 13, exhort one another every day. As long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The word for exhort here is literally translated, should be translated, but keep on exhorting one another every day as long as it is called today. What why would we exhort one another that none of y'all may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Keep on exhorting. Continual exhorting. Exhorting is what I'm doing right now, right? I exhort every Sunday morning. That is preaching. We we exhort one another, we charge one another. We speak the truth to one another. We don't shy away. We don't back down. When we see brothers and sisters in the church in danger, we don't just shrug our shoulders and walk away and say, man, they're really messing their life up. It's none of my business, though. That is not true. That is a lie. Because of what Jesus has done, church, we are family, Your business is my business. I know that that may be uncomfortable, but it's the reality. It is the truth in Christ, and my business is your business. We are our brother's keeper, we are our sister's keeper. And here's the deal though, you see, because that seems kind of strange to us and that makes some of us uncomfortable. And the reason why that makes us uncomfortable is because we have been doctrinated in an anti-Christian way of viewing the world and the church. If you are an American, you have specifically been indoctrinated in the ways of American individualism. And what that myth teaches us is that the way forward is to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. Anything that I need, anything that I need to achieve, I will do it in my own strength, and I don't need any help from anybody else. Well, that's not what the Bible says. And when you combine American individualism with this new thing that's now come about in our nation, in our world, The validation of the inner self, where the greatest tragedy in the world is to tell someone that they're wrong about something, it is a recipe for disaster, and it is a recipe for apostasy. It is a recipe that attacks the very core of what the church is supposed to be. We have to be willing to look one another in the eye and say, I love you, and because I love you, I am going to tell you that what you're doing is leading you down a road of destruction. If you're not willing to have that conversation, can you really say you love that person? Would you be willing to let your child walk down that road? You see? That's the difference. You see, when we, when we talk, start talking about our own children, it changes the tone. Our mindset changes. We would do anything we could to protect them. We would lay down in front of the train that's about to go by in a few minutes if it meant to protect our children. But the radical nature of the gospel teaches us, church, that we are growing in love so that we are all family. This is our family. We've got to live this way if we're going to be faithful to what Christ has called us to. And some people say, well, that sounds like a cult. You guys are weird. Let me ask you this. Name one thing we do right now that's not weird. (laughs) We worship a Savior who was nailed to a cross and three days later his lifeless corpse was miraculously given life again we gather around a table and we eat bread and we say this is his body and we drink the cup and we say this is his blood that was spilled for us we sing songs about his blood covering our sin You can't be a Christian unless you're willing to be weird. And so the way we think about community is weird too. And you know what? That's fine because I would rather be faithful than worry about not being weird. I want to live my life the way Christ has called his church to live our lives. And it shouldn't matter to us what the cost of that is. So how do we do this? Well, thankfully, it it keeps going. And we get more instruction on this. If you flip over with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And so this is a very similar type passage to the one we just looked at. And and to show you how similar it is, it's the same theme. I'm going to look at verse 23 He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. Do you see there? Another call to persevere. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. God is holding us. So let's continue to hold our confession. How do we do that? Look at verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you see the community again? The the, the, the exhorter to the Hebrews is saying, look, if you want to persevere, in your faith, if you want to hold fast your confession, you need one another. And not only do you just need to be in the presence of one another, but you need to be actively engaged in exhorting one another, in meeting together with one another, in fact, in considering how to stir one another up to love and good works. The, the, the word for consider is a word that means to pay attention, to to study. Study one another with the aim of serving one another. And and, and it's interesting that right after that, he says not neglecting to meet together because it's just it seems like logic to me. You're never going to be able to stir one another up to love and good works if you never see each other. (laughs) Right? If you don't have habits, because he talks about it as a habit. Look at verse 25. Some people are not making this a habit, as is the habit of some. They are neglecting to meet together. If it is your habit to neglect meeting with one another, then it is also your habit to neglect considering one another in order to stir one another up to love and good works. Because if you're not around each other, you're certainly not loving each other. This doesn't just happen. It requires intentionality. It requires habits like any change in your life requires. And you know this. If you've ever had to change something, you go to the doctor and the doctor says, hey, your, your heart's in bad shape. You're going to have to change your diet. You're going to have to start exercising. What does that mean? It doesn't mean you're going to go home and, and think about how great it is that you need to be in better shape. No, it means that you are going to have to change your habits. You are going to have to start thinking about life in a different way. You are going to have to change your diet. You are going to have to probably get a gym membership or buy a treadmill for your house, and you're going to have to make yourself get on it. You know that to change something in your life, it requires the change of your habits. And church, listen to me. It's no different when it comes to spiritual matters. If you want to be a person who loves the people in the church so that you can obey the call to stir one another up to love and good works you are going to have to make sure that your life is habituated towards that end do you have those habits love requires intentionality hey men here's a little freebie valentine's day is in about 2 weeks and If you want to obey the dictates of Hallmark, you will observe it. But if you also want to make your wife happy, you will observe it. Because you recognize, though, that in order to make that day special it's going to require you to be intentional. You're going to have to plan. You're going to have to take action. You're going to have to do things to show her that you love her. We understand this romantically. We have no problems knowing, understanding that love requires intentionality when it comes to romantic love. What, What I think Hebrews is showing us is that love requires intentionality in any context. If we are going to be loving people, we are going to be, have to be people who pay attention to one another. There was a Holocaust survivor by the name of Ellie Wiesel who wrote one time, The opposite of love is indifference. And that's also a Lumineer song, but I just let you know they stole it. I was going to give credit to the Lumineers, and then I Googled it, and so it's not them. The opposite of love is indifference. There's so much wisdom in that. When we look at one another and we just don't care, can we honestly say that we're loving each other? You can't love if you don't care. You can't care if you don't know, and you won't know unless you're present. So it's all tied together. We have to make sure that it is our habit to meet together so that we can make sure that it is our habit to know what is going on in one another's lives so that we can make sure that it is our habit to minister and care for one another tangibly. And the goal of all of this is so that every single one of us will hear from our Lord Jesus Christ at the end. Well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have persevered to the end. Enter into salvation. That's the goal. But you know, I don't want to just get me there. I want to get you there. And you've got to want to get other people there. Let's get one another there. But here's the second aspect of watchfulness that I want to share real quick with you this morning before before we're finished. Look with me at pastoral watchfulness. Turn over to Hebrews 13, verse 17. Hebrews 13, verse 17. So this is the end of the exhortation, and there's several exhortations mingled in here. But in verse 17... He says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, he's talking about leadership in the church. He's talking specifically about those who are called to be pastors, Pastors are called in the New Testament overseers. Meaning that they are guardians. They have an office of guardianship over the people who have been placed under their leadership. That they are called to watch. See what he says? Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? Why would we do that? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who who will have to give an account. Now, verse Hebrews 13 focuses on the obligation of the congregation and the pastor congregation relationship. We can go many other places and see the obligation of the pastor. But one of the places that I'll turn to and share with you very quickly is Acts chapter 20 verses 28 through 31. This is Paul charging the Ephesian elders. Remember where he gets down, and he's in tears and he cries with them before he leaves their presence. We looked at that recently. And he says this to those pastors, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. He uses two images here. He says, you are overseers There's that word of guardianship, but he also says that you are called to be shepherds. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. You are a shepherd. That's the other major image that the New Testament uses to describe the role of the pastor is that we are shepherds. What does a shepherd do with the sheep? Well, the shepherd is in charge of the nourishment of the sheep, making sure that the sheep are fed. The shepherd is in charge of protecting the sheep, making sure that fierce wolves do not come in or rise up from among us. And the shepherd is in charge of directing, leading the sheep. Where are we going to go next? They follow. We see this again in 1 Peter chapter 5, 2-4. through 4. The same imagery is used. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And I love that, that Peter reminds these pastors that this is not about you. This is about Christ because that's the only way this works. The authority given to the pastor is borrowed authority. It is not used for selfish gain. The pastor does not just speak and minister so that he can get a bigger bank account and a larger retirement fund. The pastor is there to exercise oversight and shepherd the flock because the pastor recognizes that he is accountable to the chief shepherd. Everything is directed towards Christ. The authority of the pastor is not absolute. The authority of the pastor only goes as far as what the Scriptures say. Christ is the pattern for what the ministry of the shepherd is supposed to look like. And so back to Hebrews. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. When pastors are faithful to the model that the New Testament sets out, the the obligation of the congregation is to obey and submit to them in their position as pastor as they seek to lead you spiritually, the congregation is called to follow. And and, and he goes further, and and he says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So make their task, their calling, joyful. Church, please make it joyful. Because at the end of the day, Look at what he says at the end. If you don't, for that would be of no advantage to you. You will not benefit from the watch care of your pastors if you are bucking against their leadership every step of the way. This system only works when there's joyful submission, by the way, it only works when the pastor and leaders, the the pastors understand that their calling is to serve you, that the authority entrusted to me and to Josh in this church at Ashland Community Church is not authority to make you serve us. The authority entrusted to us is authority so that we would use that authority to serve you and lead you to Jesus Christ. It's the only way it works. And in my time, my short time, as a pastor, I have experienced both. I have experienced those who question everything I do. I have experienced people who interpret every single action in the worst possible way. I have pastored people who compare everything I say to some famous podcast preacher who lives far away and has nothing to do with their lives. And I've pastored people who just generally don't trust authority at all. And I've also pastored people and many people who joyfully follow, even as they compare every word I say to Scripture, who give the benefit of the doubt and understand that I'm a human and I will make mistakes too, who get their direction not from the land of the internet, from the men tasked with oversight of their souls. Listen to me. John Piper, John MacArthur, Vody Bachum, whoever it is you love to listen to, they, don't have, they will not stand before God and give an account for your soul. I, Josh, we will stand before God and give an account for your soul. And I've pastored many people who strive to trust unless there's genuine reason not to. And I can tell you every time, people who belong to that first group, they do not grow, they do not promote unity, and they are not joyful in the church. They are miserable. And people in the second group generally grow They generally promote the unity and the welfare of the church, and they generally enjoy the church. And it's up to you, and it's up to us. But at the end of the day, church, we are committed to watching one another. May we be ever more committed to that in these days. Let's pray together.